You're listening to Conservation Connection. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running an environmental education nonprofit that's focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and to collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys. You probably thought the episode was starting, and it will in 30 seconds. But first, we wanted to let you know that we're taking a four-week break starting on July 16th, 2023. We'll be back with our 100th episode and another awesome season on August 13th. This is your chance to catch up on some older content and send us your ideas for what you'd like to hear in the next season. Now let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. Uh, we're here at the Sun Valley Forum 2023. Got some great stories last year, getting some incredible stories this year as well. Very excited this episode to be sitting down with Jeff Goodell. He is the author of an upcoming book, The Heat Will Kill You First, author of many other really amazing books, as well as a contributing writer for Rolling Stone. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. I know you've been very busy moderating and attending sessions, and as you said, working on your day job as well while you've been here. So I'm very glad that we could find time. Um, gosh, where do we start? I would love to start the provocative title, The Heat <laughs> Will Kill You First. I think I know what that's about, but it. I would love to get your perspective on like, what is the book? What does it cover? And kind of what was the process of the research process going into writing the book for you? Well, that's a Lots to talk about there. Um, <laughs> the title of the book, you know, is something that I kind of came up with. Um, titles of books are always hard. I kind of came up with it as many titles emerge like at three o'clock in the morning when I'm, you know, at my typewriter in a panic because I need a title. And, um, you know, we had originally just considered calling the book Heat, but then the publisher thought that was not um, that was just sort of too boring. And Michael Mann has already made a movie about that. So, <laughs> so. Um, the, the title refers to the fact that when you, we think about climate change, um, you know, drought, sea level rise, all the kinds of things that we know about climate change, things that are our world is changing very quickly right now. It's heat that is really um, the most danger to us as people, right? You know, um, you're not going to stand on the beach or sit on the beach and drown because of sea level rise, right? Right. I mean, it'll increase the storm surge and things like that, but you're not going, it's not going to kill you. It might, you know, devalue your real estate if you own a coastal house or something. Same thing with drought. I mean, drinking water is really important, but you're not going to sort of die of thirst in any kind of immediate way. Heat will kill you like a lightning bolt. Um, my book is full of stories of people who thought they were fine, thought they understood heat, just went for a hike on a hot day and dropped dead. Um, and one of the things that I really understood in reporting this book was how little we understand the risk of heat. 
um, which is kind of ironic because, you know, this thing called global warming, people have been talking about, I mean, for a hundred years, but we've been talking about it, you know, in the media and in the real, I mean, most of us have heard of global warming for, you know, a long time. So, and that, of course, heat is the center of that. But until very recently, no one has really thought about what the, what are the real implications of, of living in extreme heat. And so this book explores that. It explores the basic idea is that we have, you know, our, all of life on earth involved in this sort of Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. And what happens as we move out of the Goldilocks zone? Um, what happens to our bodies? What happens to plants? What happens to animals? What happens to, uh, you know, forests? How do they migrate? What happens to diseases? All these kinds of implications of, uh, the warming of just a few degrees of temperature. So how is the book organized? Is it written sort of in a narrative perspective or is it like a topical chapter? How did you organize the, the publication? Well, that's always a hard thing. Um, especially for a book like this, which is aimed at a general audience. I'm not, um, you know, I've been writing about climate change for 20 years. Uh, I feel like I'm sort of very well educated in it, but I'm not writing a textbook. I'm not writing for scholars. I'm writing for my aunt and your aunt and, you know, my daughter and, you know, kids in college and just an, an average reader. And that's a real challenge because, um, you know, part of the trick about the whole climate story is making people understand what's at stake, making people care and engaging people in a story that is not, I mean, face it, it's not like the sexiest story. It's not like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do for fun. I'm going to go pick up a book about climate change. You know, <laughs> what a great way to spend a Friday night, right? right? So you have this hurdle of like convincing people to care and to read and to tell a story that is meaningful. And I started out many moon ago wanting to be a novelist. And and so my instinct as a writer are to tell stories about characters. And in this book, I do that. Um, there's It's a very narrative, very character driven. It's about experiences of people who have, um, who are working on heat in from all kinds of different aspects, from city planners who are thinking about how to redesign cities to people who have lost loved ones from heat stroke to people who, uh, you know, I spent time in Phoenix, Arizona with homeless people on the street who are dealing with, with extreme heat. I mean, and I really try to write about it in a novelistic way. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, I may certainly have pages about the science and things, but it, it, it's really um, geared to read as a story. And... So the organization of it is sort of built around that. It has a kind of loose organization of, that starts with kind of what the problem is and then moves through various chapters talking from different angles about what he does. And then it moves on to, you know, what we can do about it and what people are doing about it. City planners, things like that, naming heat waves, doing better jobs of communicating about it. Um, people who are doing better jobs are trying to understand the different kinds of risk of dry heat versus wet heat, you know, humid places, you know, 100 degrees in in Texas where I live and it's really humid is different than 100 degrees in Palm Springs, right, because of the humidity. So it's people working on all that kind of stuff. So it has a very loose narrative structure, um, but it's very character driven. I feel like 
it's a perfect time for the book to come out. I think you said July 11th. Is that right? Kind of what technically wouldn't be considered like the middle of summer, but I think what people, a lot of people, especially with school breaks, at least in the U.S., would consider the middle of summer and especially with the heat level rises that we're seeing right now. I mean, I read an article the other day that was like saying that a family left the inside of their house because it was too hot. They went to get in their car to cool down and couldn't get cool fast enough. And so the whole family died, which is terrible and tragic. But it's it's not just that. That happens everywhere in the world. That's not the only case of that happening. happening. And we see it happening more and more. So it's clearly a good time for this book to be coming out and for more people to be learning about and hearing about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we have El Nino, uh, NOAA, you know, the top scientific agency in the U.S. here, just announced that this is an El Nino cycle, which is an atmospheric cycle that will drive a lot more warmth. Um, all indications are that we're going to have a very, very hot summer this year. Um, we're going to have a lot of hot summers to come until we stop burning fossil fuels. But I think that right now, um, a lot of things are aligning um, to make this a particularly brutal summer. Some of the uh, measurements of ocean temperature uh, right now, especially in the North Atlantic, which has a lot of implications for our weather and our jet stream, are higher right now today than they have ever been recorded in human history. Uh, and that's very alarming because that has a lot of uh, implications for our weather system. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, start this, I started this book three and a half years ago because it was a subject that I felt um, hadn't been thought about enough and that there was a lot of room for me to um, add to the sort of accumulated understanding of climate change through this understanding of heat. But now I feel like I'm like living in the pages of a book that I wrote, right. which is very spooky and kind of weird. Yeah. I can you only know? imagine. Yeah. Well, especially when the book is titled The Heat Will Kill You yeah, First. Right? Know, right? It's not like rainbows and candy land. You yeah. know? It's, it's yeah. very much a book that you don't want to be living in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I mean, you know, I kind of think of the book as a kind of beach read for the climate age. Um, you know, I, really, because I do think that it's, um, we have to think about heat in a different way. I mean, you just talked about the family who, you know, died in the car, and we've all heard stories like that, and I write about a number of stories like that in, um, in the book. And, you know, that kind of thing happens um, because we don't understand what the risks are. Right. We don't understand how heat kills us. And we don't understand. We sometimes people think, oh, if I just drink enough water, I will be fine. No, you won't be fine if you just drink enough water. It's important to drink water, but that will not save you. Uh, and so there's this profound misunderstanding. And as our world gets hotter and hotter and as these heat waves get more and more extreme, understanding this is really key, really, really important. Mm -hmm. When Amy introduced you the other day, um, as you opened the forum, she said something along the lines of like, you are the opener that's like opening us on kind of a dark note. And then as the forum goes on, we're going to talk about more hopeful stuff. But with that said, I'm curious if your book, is it all like the heat will kill you? There's nothing we can do. Or is there like messages of hope in it? Well, I really... Uh, don't like this binary of doomer or not. It's like you, right now in the climate conversations, this is like you're either a doomer or you're like a solutions person. Right. And, and you're put into these two different camps. I think that um, 
that's a kind of false binary. And I think that um, I agree that doomerism is um, as bad as climate denial. I mean, I think the notion that there's nothing we can do is uh, anyone who thinks that doesn't understand the subject. And that's certainly not th nothing that I ever advocate or write about. I think there's a tremendous amount we can do. There's a lot of, I mean, I get asked all the time, you know, I've been writing about climate change for 20 years. You know, why are you not like an alcoholic living in your basement <laughs> depressed about the state of humanity, right? Yeah. And like, how do you like write about this for 20 years and not want to kill yourself? You know, I mean, yeah. not to pun on the title, but um, <laughs> uh, it's because there's there's two reasons. One is because I think it's the most important story of our time, how we're going to deal with climate change. It's the human story of our time. When I started writing about climate change 20 years ago, I would talk to people like at dinner parties or whatever. And I would tell them that I wrote about climate change. And it was like, I told them I wrote about the sex life of porcupines or something. It was like, <laughs> oh, that's cute. It must be fun. I bet you have a great time with that. You know, yeah. they didn't give a shit, right? They didn't right. care, right? It's like not relevant. And now everybody wants to talk about it, whether they like agree or disagree or whatever. But it's like everyone knows it's, it's happening. It's a huge forefront issue. Right. And so now, you know, this is sort of central to our conversation. Um, uh, and so that gives me a lot of inspiration, this sort of larger, um, you know, movement of the understanding of this story. But, but I also am just endlessly inspired by the people who are working on this, like the people here at this forum who are thinking about new ways to live, you know, new ways to design our world and new ways to get energy. And it's not like the world that we have, even lovely as Sun Valley is here, is like all perfect. You know, there's a lot right. of really ugly strip malls and, you know, dumb big cars that are brutal. I mean, it's not like we have the perfect civilization and, and if we dare change it, it we're going to be Right. You know, it's going to be a tragic loss. There's a lot of really dumb shit out there that in dumb ways of doing things that we can do a lot better. And I think that climate change is going to be the catalyst for that. And that's what makes it so exciting and hopeful for me. But I also think, and I said this at the forum um, yesterday, that we got to be real about what we're facing. This is not just like stopping to use plastic straws or, you know... Uh, adding a new bedroom onto our house or something like that. I mean, this, we have to understand that this is a, uh, the reality of the scope and scale of the threat of climate change and what it means to our lives and the scale of the effort it's going to take to change. And so to the degree that my book is dark, yes, it's dark because it tells you the truth about right. what we're facing. But it's, it's far from hopeless because there's a lot of things that we can do to make it better. But I fear when the sort of hope conversation is too often like naive. It's just like, okay, yeah, it just makes you feel better about yourself. And yeah, we can do this, you know, right. and it's like, like winning a football game. This is not like winning a football game. This right. is a very different thing. And so I think of my book as a kind of dose of reality. Like so that. coming off of that conversation right there, what were some of the surprising techniques that you found as you were traveling and researching of ways that people are adapting cityscapes or lifestyles to extreme heat? Oh, well, there's so many things. So in the sort of urban design category, um, you know, simple things like planting trees, right? Like, so that, you know, shade matters, right? And yeah. Um, you know, we've done a really good job of cutting down trees. Um, Every it, single tree in a neighborhood. Right. Right. <laughs> Just houses. 
Yeah, and because they want to widen the roads or put in another lane or they just don't care and they just think of them as a pain and they have to water them and they, you know, they drop leaves and people get annoyed because they dead drop leaves. How or, dare or, they? Right. I mean, it's <laughs> like, so the, the soil, so, I mean, simple things like that, you know, we have these, even here, I was looking out the window of my, of the hotel over there, these giant asphalt parking lots that, you know, all they do is absorb and reflect heat. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of thinking about, you know, how to design a city in a different way, getting cars out of cities, um, or re at least restricting their access, white surfaces instead of black surfaces, white roofs, light colored roofs, you know, the color, as you know, from the, if you go out on a hot day wearing, like I'm wearing today, a black shirt, you feel a lot hotter than if you're wearing a white shirt, right? Yes. You can tell, I mean, you know that everybody knows that. And it's the same thing with the construction materials that we use, right? So people are moving towards different kinds of construction materials, um, air conditioning access, um, you know, designing buildings so you don't need air conditioning or you don't need so much of it, right? Cooling centers um, where you get uh, public libraries or other things that are to stay open on hot days and you, you know, communicate with people who don't have access to air conditioning or something to go give them a place to go to, you know, and one of the most important things that's happening and that is is really crucial is just simply communicating with people during heat waves, right? So a lot of people die during heat waves because they're in their apartment and nobody's checking on them. They tend to be, in some cases, older people or something like that, and they're just alone and they can't afford to run their air conditioning or they don't have air conditioning or whatever. Uh, and they're not aware of how hot it's going to get. They're not watching, you know, they're not on Twitter every hour, or like watching all this. If they're not getting heat warnings and they just think it's going to be okay and it's not okay. So just the simple things like checking, you know, on people, calling your aunt, calling your grandma, you know, uh, people that you know who are vulnerable, making sure that they're safe understanding, you know, the importance of like how you can cool down just by taking a cold shower. I mean, just things like that. What are some of the techniques to, to cool down? All these things are easy to do and will save many, many, many lives, but we don't do them because we don't understand. And we, and we haven't had to do them right in the past, right? It's a changing world out there and we're right. having to respond to an entirely new threat. Right. And it, it just goes right into that. Like we're moving out of the Goldilocks zone. Right. Or we're adapting to a situation that our species has never had to deal with in the past. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, it's one thing to, you know, like, I mean, the Pacific Northwest heat wave in 2021 was a perfect example. Everybody knows about that, um, you know, that hit Vancouver and Washington and Oregon. Killed about, I think, 700 people. Um, no, I think the numbers now have been revised to 1,000. Even that's a big undercount. But, you know, it was in a place that, you know, no climate models were predicting 121 degree heat waves in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's like snow in the Sahara or something. It's like it, it, it never happens. It doesn't right. happen. You and, think of the Pacific Northwest and you're like, oh, it just kind of stays cool up there, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, people are always asking me, like, where do you, you know, uh, Jeff, you understand climate change. Where should I move? You know, what's the best place to go? And, you know, there is no safe place, but I always would point out the Pacific Northwest is like, it's got, you know, a lot of water, it's relatively cool, you know, I mean, there's a lot of virtues to the Pacific Northwest from a climate future point of view. And yet it gets hit with this extreme heat wave. No one knew what to do. No one understood what it meant. No one knew how to, you know, 
um, you know, had this idea of calling people who were vulnerable. Very few people had air conditioning. There's no cooling centers. Just completely unprepared for it. And a lot of people died, right? So, I mean, that's one of the problems is it's not just this progressive thing that's like, Oh, last summer it was it got up to 90 degrees in Sun Valley and this summer it's cutting to 92. It's not like that. It's like these heat waves because of the changes in atmospheric patterns and stuff related to the melting of the Arctic and all kinds of complicated things um, are manifesting themselves in these extreme bolts of just like, you know, mind boggling heat. Right. Like right now in Texas, where I live yesterday, uh, I think seven cities in Texas broke their all-time heat record, which in Texas is saying something, like 115, 116 degrees. And this is the first day of summer. Yesterday was the first day of summer. I mean, it's just like, and that heat is going to continue, you know, through the next week. And it's even for people in Texas who, like I said, are completely used to heat and think that they're immune to it, are freaking out, right? And so... One of the interesting questions I explore in the book and that scientists don't have a good answer to is how hot can it get? Given, I mean, obviously, if we keep burning fossil fuels and turn the earth into Venus, it can get really hot. But I mean, just like at the levels of if we continue kind of as with business as usual. So, for example, there was a, a heat wave in Antarctica last year that spiked temperatures by 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, wow. 70 degrees. So if you... One of the things I was asked, could, could you imagine a heat wave that would hit Texas or Sun Valley or New York City or wherever you want to name that was like 50 degrees higher than, you know, the highest temperatures? Do we, is it possible? And the general consensus is not, we're not going to get any heat waves that are going to be like 145 degrees or 150 degrees in, you know, New York or Sun Valley or Texas. But the upper limits are not clear. So, you know, we could get like really extreme heat waves that would cause, you know, and the problem is the cascading effects, which is already happening in Texas, is because then you get blackouts, right? Because you have this incredible demand for power. The energy grid is not set up for this. In during the heat, the uh, it has a big impact on a, a lot of the power plants, cooling and waters and the, the wires and things. So blackouts are much more frequent. Then you have a massive blackout. It's 120 degrees. You have no way to cool anything. You have no way to cool every, anything. And then you have what one scientist in the book describes is like a Katrina-like heat event where you have thousands of people dying simply from the heat, simply because of this cascading effect of, of this. And so those are the kind of things that are um, kind of most terrifying to me. I mean, even with the Texas thing yesterday, you know, I was here yesterday, but my wife and kids are in Texas. And my daughter said, like, it's really, really hot out here. And like, what, ha what do I do if we run out of power? I mean, if the power goes out, like, what do, what do I do, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's scary because then all of a sudden, even people who are young and in good shape are vulnerable. Yeah. Right? What was your answer? <laughs> I said, go to, go to uh, there's a river down uh, in the center of Austin um, uh, in this sort of swimming hole called Barton Springs. I said, go to Barton Springs and hang out under the trees and go for a swim and, you know, you'll, you'll be okay. I mean, I, I think that she would figure out how to handle it because yeah. for better or for worse, my poor daughter lives with, has a father who's like talking about this kind of thing all the time. <laughs> for about three and a half years or so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she's like, oh my God, don't talk about this again, dad. But um, <laughs> Um, 
but you know, not everybody. I'm not everybody's dad. <laughs> so I mean, there are a lot of people. We who can't all beautiful. text you when it's exactly. really, really hot. Exactly. You're like, please don't put my number right. on the podcast. Please, please, yeah. please. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so talking a little bit more about your family life and kind of you as a person, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey getting into scientific writing, other kinds of stories that you've told. Like, is this something you always knew you were headed towards? No. No. <laughs> but you said you've been doing this for 20 years now. Yeah. So how'd you get to that point 20 years ago? Um, so I, you know, I was an English major in college. Um graduated from college and um, wanted to be a novelist. I think I mentioned that earlier and went to Columbia University for graduate school uh, to get a MFA, Master's of Fine Art in fiction writing. And, uh, and when I was graduating there, let me, how do I put it? I did not show my early genius as a novelist, shall we say. <laughs> um, and so the head of the school said, oh, there's a, there's a weekly news magazine that's starting up in Manhattan. Um, you should go talk to them about doing some journalism. And I'm like, what are you talking about journalism? I don't, I've never even covered a soccer game. What do, I don't know anything about journalism. <laughs> I never thought about journalism. I never, it never even occurred to me to be a journalist. And I went, but I went down there because I needed a job or did something to do. And so I went down there and, um, talked to them and they read some of my short stories and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll give it you a try. There was a cop shot out in Queens yesterday. Uh, go write about this, you know, how the other cops feel about this cop who was shot. I'm like, well, what do I do? And then like, just go and give us 2,000 words by tomorrow. And I'm like, I have no idea what to do. But I went out there <laughs> and just talked to the cops and wrote this sort of, you know, street scene thing. Uh, and they loved it and ran it on the cover of the magazine and hired me the next day. So wow. uh, and I became a city um, reporter. So I did a lot of crime, um, politics. You, after that, you stuff. must have been like, hey, I'm good at this. <laughs> well... I would feel like that for a little while and then I would actually sit and try to write and then I think I'm no good at this and this is a disaster and you know, uh, you know, writing. That's, that's a lot of artists uh, yeah. experiences like I'm amazing. Oh no, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> any, I mean, any, everybody knows, uh, well, they don't know. Anybody who's tried to write know how, knows how hard writing is and, um, and it never gets easier and it's not easy for anybody. And there's times when it's easy and times when it's not, but it is a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a um, drama-less profession, shall we say. But anyway, so I, I, I wrote about cops and things like that for a couple of years. And then this magazine um, went out of business, not because of me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, at least I flatter myself into thinking that it wasn't because of me. I love that you had to clarify that. Yeah. Like, I did not run it into the ground. Yeah. I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, my stories had gotten enough um, attention that um, I got hired by Rolling Stone immediately. And um, because I grew up in California and in Silicon Valley, um, and I worked at Apple in the early days, uh, I knew a lot about tech. So I started writing about tech for, for Rolling Stone uh, and did some other, I wrote about AIDS and some other stuff, but just a general stuff, general assignment stuff. And then in, in 2000, the New York Times Magazine called me up and said, you know, George W. Bush has just been um, elected. He's got this, you know, fossil fuel energy plan. It's going to mean there's going to be a lot more mining of coal. So why don't you go back, go down to West Virginia and write us a big piece about the comeback of coal? And I remember being on the phone with this editor from the New York Times and him telling me this. And this little bubble went off in my head. It's like, coal? What are you talking about? We don't burn coal in America. I thought I thought coal had gone out with like Charles Dickens. I had no, 
<laughs> idea that we burned coal. But of course, I didn't say that to him. I said, that's a great idea. Uh, yep. and, I, and I went to, to, to West Virginia uh, and spent a, basically a month and a half reporting the story. It was, uh, and I saw these mountaintop removal mines. And I, that's when I first learned about CO2 and fossil fuel emissions and began thinking about climate change. It became a cover story for the New York Times Magazine. And basically, ever since then, uh, I haven't looked back and basically have done nothing but climate change since then. And so that was 2000. That ran in, in 2000. So that's been 23 years. Um, and, you know, everyone, when I'm giving a reading or talking to people, they they often will say, you know, what is your degree in science? What mm-hmm. qualifies you to write about? complicated science why should we believe you or trust you about anything you write you're not a scientist you know and i always feel like my great virtue is that i'm not a scientist because um i don't assume knowledge i am very good at asking really dumb questions over and over again like explain that to me again i don't get a molecule does what and like asking it again and like explain to me like i'm six you know and um, I think the prerequisite to writing well about science is not a science degree, but a scientific curiosity about how things work and explain this to me and how does that work and why does that work and why is your research important? Why is your paper more important than that other paper? And convince me of that. And, you know, I want to write for a broad audience. And so I feel like um, I'm always trying to to um, backpedal from my scientific knowledge and understanding. Even though I've written about climate change for 25 years or 23 years, I, 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 I'm really trying to background all that because what's important is communicating with people. And, you know, charts and data just like immediately put people off. And it's all important. And for me as a writer, I have to understand charts and data and I have to understand a good scientist from a bad scientist and a huckster from a genius and, you know, credible stuff from not credible stuff and understanding publication background and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what I want to talk to my reader about. So, um, you know, a lot of the science writing that I see is just too hard and too boring and I don't even like it. You know, I mean, it's just, and it has its place. I mean, it's, there's no question about that, but it's just not the kind of writing that I want to do. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely nice to meet a kindred spirit in that way. We do a lot of, with our nonprofit and the podcast, we do a lot of science communication and science communication workshops, particularly with like undergraduate students that are getting into the science pipeline to be career researchers. And like, how do you tell the story of your research? Like, how do you explain what you're doing at a level that somebody who never graduated high school wants you to get more funding to continue your research, right? right? And that is, it's a, a very different skill set from being a good researcher. Totally. Um, and it's something that I, there's not enough of it in the world. So it's, yeah. it's always, always good to hear somebody else prioritizing that style of communications. Yeah. And there's a lot of great scientists, great, great, great scientists who are awful communicators. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, James Hansen, the guy who, uh, was basically the godfather of global warming science who in 1988 in a congressional testimony you know said in front of congress the fingerprint of climate change has been detected he's you know he's the nasa scientist he's like he's like the guy 
you go to one of his talks and you just want to hang yourself. I mean, it's just <laughs> like I don't I don't even understand a word he's saying. Right. You know, it's just like he he he's a great guy and a brilliant scientist, but oh my God. You yeah. know, try. and I think what it is is that scientists are very good at communicating incredibly complex specific concepts to other scientists right. who need that level of complexity. Right. But it is entirely useless for right. somebody who doesn't get the jargon, doesn't understand the nuance of of these particular, you know, molecular shifts or whatever it is. Right. And and that's that's where the disconnect is. So they're talking to people like they're scientists. Right. And it's not only science. I mean, it's also finance. Absolutely. I oh, mean, yes. Everything. I mean, you know, you talk to some of these people about various financial funding mechanisms and things like that. And, oh, my God, you know, it's just like so complicated. And they're talking to each other and it's important and they understand it. And, you know, but to um, communicate these ideas outside to other normal people who are just regular people who like me i was talking to some people here at the forum yesterday on the patio uh, these financial people and i was like i have no idea what you're talking about I, what are you what mech what is this mechanism how's this thing work i mean it's like so these financial tools are so complex right and um you know a lot of the people who are good at designing them and making them work are just not good at explaining and telling the story of how they work and why you should care yeah right and that's when we first started Conservation Connection. I told Chance, I was like, I want to have a show that people can go to listen, to learn a little bit more about something they want to learn about without having to feel like they have to sit down and read a textbook. Because, right. I mean, me personally, I don't want to sit down and read a textbook. I can't right. retain it. I'm not going to learn anything from that. Right. But making it accessible and to the general public and making them feel like, okay, now I have a little bit of a background, I can go and learn more. Right. That's right. where to start. Right. You know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. So what is next for you after this book comes out? I'm sure you have some tours lined up probably for the book, I would imagine. But do you have anything else in the pipeline that you're really excited to be working on? No. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'm really excited to spend some time on the beach relaxing. Yes. Uh, you know, writing a book is really hard. Um, and publishing a book is really hard. Mm -hmm. Going around doing a lot of interviews and getting it out there and making connections with people, talking to booksellers. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into getting a book into the world also. Um, and also books are, you know, um, the serious commitments. You know, I mean... Uh, a lot of people start books and then don't finish them. And, you know, this is my seventh book. Um, I have never started a book and not finished it. But I also, after writing seven books, I know how hard they are. And and I don't want to commit three years of my life to something that I'm going to get a year and a half into and think, what am I doing? This, I mean, every you do that with every book. I mean, you do that every every three months, like clockwork. You like, think, <laughs> what the hell am I doing? And then at the, you know, every three months, like clockwork, you're like, oh, I am a genius. This book is going to be so great. This is you the know? best book I've ever written. Yeah, and then you know, two months later, it's like, oh my god, this is such a piece of shit. I cannot believe I put my <laughs> life into this thing. You know, no one is going to read this. It's I don't even know where I am. What am I doing? I'm so tired. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, so. When I think about the next book, I, I, I right now, I, it's kind of PTSD a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, I need to think carefully about it. And, and, and I have a couple of ideas, but they're not gelled. And, um, you know, it's this sort of exploratory process that um, 
you know, comes out of a conversation with my publisher and my agent and my friends. And so I, but at the moment, no. Some good relaxation. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, it makes sense if you're committing about a bachelor's degree worth of time yeah. to a project, you really want to make sure it's the right project that you're yeah. going to be living with, breathing with for the rest of this, this time frame. Yeah. yeah, totally. And also, I mean, you know, I mean, this, the hard thing about book publishing is that, you know, like I started this book three and a half years ago. Um, and so where's the world going to be in three and a half years or four years or two years or however long it's going to take you to do your book? Of course, we no one knows. I had no idea El Nino was coming now. I had no idea where the climate conversation was going to be. But you have instincts about kind of what hasn't been talked about and what needs to be talked about and things like that. But it's still a big crapshoot. And 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 part of thinking about the next book is it's like where's the conversation going, you know, right. and trying to understand a little bit about you know, the, the sort of landscape now and what are the trend lines that we're seeing and what needs to be articulated and um, what are people going to be talking about in two years or three years? And, you know, like, like I said, no one knows, but that's part of the kind of calculation also. Yeah. So before we sign off here, I would love, I'm sure this is a question that you get asked all the time, but for you, when you run into a block when you're writing, what is what are your workarounds? Like when you you feel like you're at a place where you don't know where to go next with a story or the research that you're doing, what do you use to progress yourself forward? Well, that's an interesting question. So um, I have two answers. One is that um, because I make my living as a writer and I write on deadlines all the time, I don't allow myself to get blocked. I, I don't ever have the luxury of saying, "Oh, I'm just gonna like." you know, stop for a few days and just, you know, let it percolate and stuff. I mean, you can do that if you're writing poetry or if you're writing for yourself. But, you know, if I'm writing for Rolling Stone and the magazine is, has a deadline of X, a certain day. I, That's the I, deadline. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, so part of me is uh, is that. But part of it also is, you know, I'll do things like, Instead of typing, I'll get out a, a yellow pad and start hand. Sometimes handwriting helps me a lot, you know, and sometimes just talking to somebody. I'll tell you a quick story yeah. that, about this. It will maybe amuse you. <laughs> um, I worked for Steve Jobs when he uh, in the early days of Apple. And I knew Steve a little bit and I did some stuff with him with Rolling Stone. And and um, Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone, when Steve was sick, he had cancer. Uh, and it was well known. And, and Jan said, um, when Steve dies, we'd like you to write a, 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 a tribute, an obituary, long piece about Steve. Um, and so get ready. You know, I, we don't know. He Maybe he'll live for two more years. Maybe he'll live for two more months. We don't ever. But, you know, you're the man we want to do that. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. And, of course, then I just put it out of my head and didn't do anything. <laughs> and then I got a call, you know, or I saw in the meet, I saw online or something that Steve had died sadly and I knew it was, the end was coming in and I got a call from Jan saying okay you know your your obit is I'm sure you've got, got it pretty much done it's going in the next issue which is closing in 72 hours and, <laughs> oh. I, and of course I had not done anything and you were like yeah of course almost done yes and I was like <laughs> um yeah well I don't well, let's do it in the next issue and Jan's like no we're doing it in this issue and get it to me and um, so I had 72 hours to write this 10,000 word obit tribute to Steve Jobs. And and so, you know, there's no room for fooling around. And so I immediately went to work and I worked for like a fir the first day. And 
I thought I, I was like so happy. I thought I had it. I'd written like 10 pages. I, I, it was this whole voice of God thing of Steve was the most influential figure in the technology media world, blah, 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 kind of thing. <laughs> and my editor called me and said, okay, how's it going? You know, we got to close this thing in two days. Are you in good shape? And, um, uh, I said, yeah, it's great. And he said, uh, send me a few pages and show me. And I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, it's really good. You'll see. And I sent it to him <laughs> and he called me like in, in like two seconds. And I picked up the phone and he's like, is this all you got? And I'm like, no, yeah, but this is really good, right? And he goes, no, this is not working. Oof. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not working? And he's like, just throw all this out. This is not working. You, this is like just like stiff and terrible. And like, and I'm like, well, then we can't run it this week. And he's like, no, we're running it this week. And we're not running this, so you better do <laughs> something, else. something else. <laughs> and so he said, do you have anything else? And I said, oh, I just have some notes that I was scribbling to get myself warmed up to the, your mm -hmm. point, right? And the first thing I wrote when I was getting warmed up was Steve Jobs could be sort of a dick sometimes. And I went <laughs> on from there, right? So I sent those notes to my editor and he calls me back again he's and like, says, that's gold. He, he's got, he said, you got it. We're running. This is just <laughs> more of this. And the first line of the piece in the wrong song was Steve Jobs could be kind of a dick sometimes. And it went on from there. But it was an example of like finding a different voice, right? I was mm -hmm. trying to write the tribute of the great man when what really worked it. And I think it was, a, I'm very proud of the piece and it was very, you know, appreciative of Steve and everything, but it was in a different voice. And so by, um, you know, playing with that, I was able to establish a different voice for um, what I was writing. And that's often the trick with writing is like, what is the approach line? You know, how are you coming at this? Is it how personal mm -hmm. is it? What is your tone? It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to manage. Um, but maybe that was too long of a story. No, that was fantastic. It was a wonderful story. <laughs> that was a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, this whole conversation has been fantastic, and I really appreciate you coming on the show with us today. Sure. Um, if you guys are listening and it's after July 11th, you should run to your nearest bookstore and go grab yourself a copy of The Heat Will Kill You First. Check it out online. We're going to put some links down uh, in the show notes. You guys can learn a little bit more about Jeff Goodell and some of his amazing work. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts helps other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to everyone working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. See you next time.